what I want to do this morning, we are starting a new series today uh, on the book of Hebrews. It's called Hebrews Moving On to Better Things. And uh, that title will hopefully become clear as we go through. We're not, though, going to rip into chapter 1 of Hebrews this morning. What I want to do today is kind of set up a few things that will give us a bit of the big picture, a bit of context, a bit of an overview so that we are right ready to go next week. Does that make sense? So hopefully this will be um, a, a, a CD message that if you're confused when we get into the details, you can grab this, have a listen to it, and just kind of refresh yourself about what the big picture of Hebrews is all about. Because Sometimes there are details that we're going to get into and it's, it's going to be hard to see the wood for the trees. So there's a few kind of different things that we want to do this morning. But as you came in, you hopefully got a bit of paper that looked like this. Hebrews moving on to better things at the top. Now pull that out. And I want to just talk through one or two things on this with you. My hope in this series that we're about to embark on is that it's going to be a lot more than just a 30-minute monologue on a Sunday morning. I would love for this to be a journey that we go on together as a church. I would love for this to be something that we undertake and something that permeates all sorts of areas of our church and all sorts of conversations that you have with other people well outside these services on Sunday mornings. So to that end, one of the things I want to encourage you to do, you see here it says the Hebrews challenge, all right? What we're asking is this. If you were to read a chapter of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, every day, 13 days in a row, okay? The book's only got 13 chapters in it. So 13 days you read, and then you rest for a day. That's a two-week cycle. You do that, you'll have done it 18 times by Christmas, and imagine how familiar you are going to be with the book of Hebrews as you sit around the Christmas lunch table this year. You're going to be an expert on it, and this is one of the single best things you can do. Don't just rely on coming on Sunday morning and hearing me um, exposit these passages for you. I want you guys to get involved in this. I want this to be something that we own and take responsibility for together. And one of the best ways you can do it is simply by reading Hebrews. So why don't you set yourself this little challenge? Monday morning or, or whenever you uh, can work out a time to read a chapter of Hebrews during the day, set aside a regular time and get into this. And as a special little challenge for the, for the next week, here's a deal, all right? What if we all read the whole book of Hebrews in one sitting? between now and next Sunday. Is that possible? Would that possibly mean sacrificing an episode of Lost? <laughs> Maybe. It could come to that. All right? I know that's severe. This is called counting the, the, the cost, all right? carrying your cross. Now, it'll probably take you, I'm guessing, it's 13 chapters, how long do you reckon? 40 minutes, maybe, max. But you see, the reality is with Hebrews, it's a letter that was written to a group of people. When they received it, they read it in one sitting. It was read to them in one sitting. This whole idea that we have of demarcating the scriptures with verses and chapters is a very modern notion. And it, it leads us down the track of just pulling a bit out here, pulling a verse out there, lobbing verses at each other to prove our arguments and so on. But much better, we get a sense of what the whole thing is, try and follow the logic of what the author is actually arguing. And, and the best way to do this is simply by reading it from beginning to end. You may never have done this with a book of the Bible. Why not make this the week where you start? Take 40 minutes, and if you're really keen, get a little notepad beside you as you're reading, and just make a note of any key words that are standing out, any questions that you might have, okay? And if you get right through the book of Hebrews and you have not yet had any questions about what you're reading, you haven't read it, okay? All right. Well, if you have, then you can come and preach the sermon series, all right? Because I've got plenty of questions that I don't know about Hebrews. It's a complicated book. There's just a lot of stuff in there. But just jot down questions, jot down phrases or just things that stand out to you. I mean, there's some strange stuff in there. 
It's a tough book of the Bible. I mean, there's stuff in there about angels and this weird guy Melchizedek and the tabernacle and, and, and all that stuff and these animal sacrifices and bulls and goats and all that kind of thing. It, it's, it seems on the surface of it quite removed from our lives today. But just take a shot at reading through. Don't worry too much about studying at this stage. Just read it. And come next week and you'll just find even that will give you more familiarity with which to engage in this conversation. So that's the Hebrews reading challenge. Now, in addition to that, I've noted some resources at the bottom of the page. If you're in the habit, which I hope you are, of, of having some personal time with God, soaking up His Word, reading and studying the Bible on a, on a regular basis, preferably every day, I'd encourage you to take some time to, to work on Hebrews this year. If you're looking for something to study, if you're looking for a book of the Bible to start immersing yourself in, why not bite this off? We're going to be looking at it uh, on Sunday mornings, so start looking at it in your, uh, in your personal Bible study time. If you're in a life group and you're looking for something to study, why not have a crack at the book of Hebrews? Why not do some studies? And there are some resources here that will help you. Let me just hold up a couple of them. Here is a good life group study. It's called Hebrews Race to Glory. It's pretty simple. Look how thin that is. Hey? Easy. Easy to digest. And it's just got, I don't know how many studies, 13 studies for individuals or groups. Okay? It's just an easy way of getting your head around what did this text mean in its original context? What might it mean in my life today? So there's a good life group option. There's another one as well out on the back table. If you want to be a little bit more studious than that, you see the word commentary, and you know, this is quite a frightening term, I know, commentary. It sounds very academic, doesn't it? It sounds very theological, commentaries, and we sort of picture these huge books with more footnotes than there are even words on the pages. But check this. Look how thin. Hebrews. Look, it's got a pretty cover and everything. This is, by, this is written by Tom Wright, a great guy. He's the Bishop of Durham. He's a, he's a gentleman and a scholar. What a great guy. And he's written this commentary, which I think is one of the most accessible in terms of its readability. It's just a very conversational tone, one of the best Hebrews commentaries on the market for people that are just looking for a way to start getting into what seems like a very difficult book. I've already started using this in my prep for this series, and it's brilliant. It's just anecdotal. It's easy to read. If you picked this up and you would have worked through this as we go along on Sunday mornings, you would come with such a uh, great, you'd bring so much to these times and to the conversations that you'll be having with others, and it will really round out your understanding of what's going on. These resources and the others that are on your list, we've got a discount through Mana Green Lane. We can order them for you at 25% off. There's sign-up sheets out in the info center. So get into that. Grab one or two that you think might work for you. They're not ridiculously expensive. And just get involved in the journey because I think it's going to be exciting and it's going to be what we make it. You'll get out of it what you personally engage and put into it. All right? So this is, that's one of the things I wanted to do this morning. Now the other is trying to give you a bit of a snapshot as to who these people were that this letter toward the end of our New Testament called Hebrews is actually written to. It's very easy, isn't it, when you open the Bible, because we're so used to talking about the Bible as the Word of God, which it is, to assume that everything's, it's just this book that dropped from heaven one day onto my lap with a nice little ribbon around it, and that's the end of the story. What we're so easy to forget is that these letters emerged from real social historical circumstances. These were real letters written by real people in the first century to other real people who were struggling with real stuff. 
And the more you get your head around that and start to understand the world out of which the letter to the Hebrews emerges, the more you're going to be able to make sense of some of the, some of the content in that letter. So I thought rather than just me standing up here and reading or describing to you the situation of these, of these recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, we're trying to do this in a slightly more creative way, hence some of the stuff you see behind me. So I'm going to hand over to a drama team who are going to bring to life a little snapshot of what it might have been like for one of the guys in this community of people who received this letter from abroad, which has now found its way into our Bibles. What that time in history and what that type of life might have been like as a follower of Jesus Christ. So, take a look at this. It's uh, quite easy, I think, with Hebrews to assume that what we're dealing with is this sort of abstract theological argument that some apostle who had far too much time on his hands one day sat down and just started writing something, some massive theological diatribe about all the wonders of the universe and Jesus and all of this sort of stuff. What we are quick to forget is that this letter actually arose out of a pastoral crisis that was going on in the first century, a major crisis of faith for a community of believers. What had happened, we're in Rome, okay, the center of the Roman Empire in the first century, essentially the center of the universe as far as uh, Romans are concerned. And in Rome, there is a group of Jewish Christians. These guys had been perfectly happy back in the synagogue, back in their former way of life within Judaism, but sometime, probably in the AD 40s, one of the apostles, maybe Paul, maybe someone else, comes along and starts preaching about this new Messiah, this Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. And for whatever reason, a group of Jews bound up within the confines of first century Judaism hear this message, respond to it, give their lives to Christ, and begin following Him. You've got to remember at this time, Christianity wasn't a separate religion to Judaism, as it sort of functions like that today. Christianity is best thought of at this time as a sect within the Jewish religion. Basically just a messianic sect, a Jesus sect within Judaism. It hadn't officially split off yet. So here's a bunch of Jews that are starting now to confess Jesus as Messiah. Now understand what happens in the first century if you're a Jew and you start following Jesus. First of all, you are following a Messiah who is categorically written off by the Jewish people as cursed by God. Why? Because he's hung on a tree. He's hung on a cross, which is a sign of invoking a divine curse. And Jewish people, as far as they were concerned, there was absolutely no way that this Jesus, this Jewish peasant, could ever, ever be their Messiah. So for you to start confessing him as Lord is a major slap in the face to everything that you've ever been brought up to believe. So this would incur the shame of the family that you're a part of. You'd start bringing shame on your parents, on your siblings, and you'd probably begin to be ostracized by them if they were of any standing in Jewish culture at all. They'd start to keep you at arm's length because that's how serious your transgression was in their eyes. It was going to incur social ridicule for you because, frankly, you're, you're following a poor man's religion. Christianity didn't have a lot of social standing. It didn't have a lot of influence in the first century. It didn't have the great gods that, that could be seen and touched the idols. It didn't have all the incense and all the physical sensory experiences that went around with the Greek pagan gods. So you are going to be written off as someone that is just following some marginalized poor man peasant religion over here. And this is what Antonius is experiencing in his workplace, being ridiculed by his boss Brutus. Just that kind of shunning, just those kind of insults, that kind of slander. And maybe this is, you know, it, it's not... It is far, and yet it, it, it rings in our ears of the sorts of things that Christians may even go through today, the sort of social ostracization that can happen. Not only this, but there was also a level during this time of state persecution. 
You don't want to think of the first century as a constant wave of persecution because it wasn't quite like that. But there was, soon after these Christians, these Jewish Christians were converted, there was a wave of persecution, AD 49, under the Emperor Claudius. It wasn't as bad as the one that was coming later, interestingly. At the time this letter was likely to have been written, the worst persecution still lay ahead. It was coming under Emperor Nero in the mid-60s. But they'd still been under a wave of persecution which had resulted, and you can read in chapter 10, various things like the seizure of their property, like ridicule and social shame and beatings and imprisonment and these sorts of things. It hadn't yet got to the point of martyrdom, but it wasn't too far off. So here you've got a little community of Jewish Italians, Jewish Christ followers, starting to wonder, is it really worth it? This move that I've made, I was under the protection of the Jewish religion, which has all sorts of sanctions from Rome, now I've essentially stepped outside of that safety net, started following this Jesus, and I'm getting the hardest time that I've ever had. And what starts to kick in? Discouragement? Disillusionment with this religion? Where's this Jesus now? Where's this God who said he's vindicated me? You remember the line from the skip? Where's this Jesus who the scriptures say God's going to put all things in subjection under his feet? Well, I don't see that, do I? What I see is my boss giving me a hard time and refusing to give me a promotion because of the God that I'm choosing to follow. That's the reality these Christians were living with, and it's getting to the point where they're starting to wonder whether it's worth just throwing in the towel, whether it's worth just shrinking back a bit from all of this, stopping these public meetings of Christians and just returning to the synagogue, stopping maybe publicly confessing Christ as Lord. They probably didn't see it as an abandonment of Christian faith, rather just a private confession, just a private faith. You see some of the parallels with life today, can't you? Some of the temptations we face. Maybe I just won't be so public. Maybe I'll retreat and have a comfortable expression of faith within my own private prayer closet. These are some of the questions that are going through their minds, and some of them are starting to drop out of the meetings. Some of them are starting to drift away from the fellowship. Some of them are starting to pick up again some of the Jewish uh, legal religions, animal sacrificial practices, dietary regulations, all of these things, starting to go back to the good old days, how it used to be with the law, with the prophets, all of that stuff, the glory days, because this Jesus stuff is all just getting a bit too hard. Friends, that's the environment into which this letter is written. Can you see how this is not just abstract theology? Can you see how this is actually very deeply arising from real practical needs that are coming out of a group of Christians who are teetering on the edge of unbelief? And so some point, probably in the 50s, Someone writes this letter to the Hebrews. We don't know exactly who that is. It probably wasn't Paul, but it probably was someone close to him, someone like Barnabas or maybe Apollos. Once someone in that Pauline circle, someone in that apostolic circle, puts pen to paper, having heard about the crisis that's going on among the Jews in Rome, and writes this letter, these thir- what have become 13 chapters. And in this, in this letter, essentially his point is this. If you start shrinking back, If you stop meeting together, if you start shaking over here, you are compromising the very foundations of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Now, it would have been very easy for him to simply to write, guys, don't give up. Keep going. Carry on. What are you thinking? And there are times in Hebrews where that happens. But he's got a much deeper strategy that's going on. And this is where some of the more complex stuff comes in. Because what the author is thinking as he's putting pen to paper is this. I need to convince these group of Jews that this Jesus whom they've chosen to follow is infinitely better than anything they had before. 
infinitely superior, infinitely supreme, far and away greater than anything you might have had or anything you think you're going to go back to. Jesus tops it all. So how could you possibly think on the back of that of throwing it all in? And this is really the interpretive key to unlocking at least the first three quarters of the book of Hebrews to understand that the whole thing revolves around this motif that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than this, and he's better than that. And what I want to do in the few minutes that we have remaining today is try and walk through with you, and it's going to be, it's going to be pretty fast-paced, but you're just going to have to hang in there. The, the whole, we're going to do Hebrews in 20 minutes, 18 minutes, all right? We're going to go from beginning to end, and I want to try and give you the sense of how this plays itself out. Now, you've got that little uh, fly you had as you came in. Flick it over on the other side, Hebrews in a nutshell. Get your pen out, get your Bible out, do some finger exercises to get the blood pumping because we're going to move reasonably fast. But I want to show you how all this works and give you a sense of the big picture argument, the big story that's going on here so that when we get bogged down in Melchizedek or something, you can sort of see how all this fits into the grand theme of Hebrews. Are you ready? You want to take a breath? Anyone need to do some stretches? You happy? We're tracking? Oh, you're a responsive lot this morning, aren't you? All right. Here we go. Now, as I've, as I've mentioned to you, the key to the first three quarters of Hebrews, right through to the middle of chapter 10, is understanding that what the author is doing is trying to convince his audience that Jesus is better. He's greater. He's superior. He's better than anything you had. And, and effectively, these chapters function like a, a sort of a, a theological version of anything you can do, I can do better. Okay? This one's called anything that Judaism can do, Jesus can do better. All right, it's just, he goes through, it's just an absolute roll call of all the major figures and characters and institutions in the Jewish religion, and he just knocks them down one by one. He doesn't knock them down as such, but what he wants to do is prove that Jesus tops this, and Jesus tops that, and Jesus is greater. So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the prophets. They had their place, yes. They had the place and a very valuable one in God's redemptive story. But now we have the greatest prophet. Now we have the one who is not only prophet, but he is son. And not only son, but he's priest and he's king. And therefore, he is infinitely better than any of these prophets. Moses, Elijah, uh, you know, all the guys with the really long names and the really small books that are really hard to find. All of those guys, Jesus is infinitely better than any of them because he is the ultimate communicator. He is the ultimate spokesperson for God. So don't follow the prophets, follow the one who fulfilled the prophets, Jesus Christ. Then, Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 1, verse 4 to 14. Now this is important because angels were thought to be, in Jewish thought, the mediators of the Old Covenant. You remember when Moses went up Mount Sinai and met with God? The theory is that God ultimately is too holy to actually reveal himself in any way to Moses. So who did he use? Angels. Yeah, I mean, sure, God was there, but the, the, the thinking, the Jewish tradition that emerged is that angels sort of mediated between God and Moses in that situation, which makes them very important players in Jewish thought because they're right, they are the deliverers of the law, aren't they? They are the givers of Torah. And so the author has got to deal with angels at some point, and this is what he does. And he goes through the Psalms, this just string of quotations from the Psalms to show that everything that was said about the Messiah who was to come in the book of Psalms shows that he is greater than these angels. They were God's servants, God's ministering servants, verse 14 of chapter 1, but Jesus is the Son. He is the one about whom God said, sit at my right hand until I put all things in subjection to your feet. So he, he outranks the angels, prophets, angels, and then there's this little interlude in chapter 2, this little sermonette, 
if you like, where he basically says, all right, we're just starting, but basically you need to get the message. Don't compromise. What you've heard is important. And if the message that came through in the old system and the old covenant is binding, how much more so this message you've received about Jesus? How could you even think of giving this thing up? How could you think of falling away? Then he goes on. Chapter 2, he picks up this argument in verse 5 that Jesus is better than Adam. That might seem strange to you if you've read the book of Hebrews because Adam's name is never mentioned in the book of Hebrews. He's not there. And yet, this is the undercurrent of his argument for the most part of chapter 2, that the promises given to Adam, and you pick them up in the Psalms, the promises that were given to mankind, Adam as a representative of his posterity, the human race, promises about dominion, promises about glory, promises about liberty, none of these were fulfilled by Adam. None of these were ultimately fulfilled by our head of the human race, Adam. And so now we don't see everything in subjection to mankind. We don't see everything in subjection to Adam and his descendants. But, remember the verse, but we do see Jesus. Chapter 2, but we do see Jesus, who has fulfilled Adam's destiny on Adam's behalf. He has led the human race somewhere that Adam could never lead them. He has been the pioneer and the forerunner of a new salvation and has led humanity to glory and ultimately one day to dominion as we are co-heirs with him. So Jesus outranks Adam, prophets, angels, Adam. And then in chapter 3, of course, you can't uh, not talk about Moses. So Jesus is going to be better than Moses. And in six short verses, he sums this up with a contrast between Moses as servant and Jesus as son. Moses was a, a wonderful servant over the house of Israel, over the people that God gave him charge of. But Jesus is the son over his house, which makes him an infinitely greater leader over God's people than Moses ever was. That's not to negate Moses' work, but it is to elevate the work of Jesus our Lord. Jesus is better than Moses, and then in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus is better than Joshua. If he's better than Moses, then he's going to have to be better than, Jesus, uh, than Moses' successor, Joshua, as well. And this, there's quite a complex argument that goes on here in chapter 3, going right back to the book of Numbers, this narrative. You remember the one about when the Israelites were right at the edge of the promised land, they sent in spies and check out the land, and they came back, and what'd they say? What'd they say? Too big, there's giants in the land. That's the word I was looking for. There's giants in the land, we can't do it. And so they didn't at that point get to go in, did they? God said, right, you guys have exercised unbelief and unfaithfulness, and therefore it's going to be 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for you. And that was the beginning of that whole journey. The point the author makes is that Joshua at that time was unable to lead his people into their rest, what he calls their rest, which is a metaphor for the land, the promised land of Canaan. But that's okay, he says, because there is still a rest available. Guess what? God's rest hasn't finished. It's not done. There is a greater rest that's now available through our new leader, Jesus. And this rest is the rest of relationship with him. It's the rest of resting from our works. It's the rest, ultimately, of eternal life with him in heaven when we die. And this because Jesus is leading his people into rest, and Joshua couldn't. Jesus is a greater leader than Joshua. You see how this argument started? There's a bit of a pattern here, isn't there? You can probably start guessing, filling in the pieces. Then in chapter 4, we start getting to the really big boys here. And he starts out on this argument that Jesus is greater than Aaron, who of course is the ultimate high priest, the first high priest in the Old Testament. And he wants to argue that Jesus is greater than Aaron. And he, starts, he does this over a few chapters, but he starts here in chapter 4, and I think the beginning of chapter 5, with this argument that Aaron had to atone for his sin regularly. Every year, he had to come in and atone for his sin. But Jesus, guess what? He doesn't have to do that. 
because he is already the perfect priest, the perfect unblemished high priest who doesn't have to atone for his own sin before atoning for the sins of others. Therefore, guess what? He outranks Aaron. He's greater even than Aaron the high priest. So we get down this far and then we stop in this interlude of chapter 5 verse 11. Basically, the injunction is grow up. All right, we've come this far. You've seen how this is starting to play out. Now, guys, we've got to get real about this. You need to grow up. You're teetering on the edge of faith. You're messing with mediocrity. You're starting to compromise. It's time to put a stake in the ground and grow up. It's time to mature. It's time to get into the Word of God. It's time to get real about this and start getting serious about this Jesus who you confess as Lord. And so there's this quite harsh, it sounds to our ears anyway, quite harsh uh, rebuke really that goes on to these Jewish believers who are thinking of falling away because there's a time to do that, isn't there? To play the hard card and say, guys, you've got to get this sorted. And there's that tricky little passage in there in chapter 6 that we'll come to about if someone falls away, can they ever be brought back to repentance? Because of course that's an issue, isn't it? If you've got these Jewish believers falling away, well, what about my brother Tom over here who's already thrown in the towel? Can he ever be brought back into the Christ community? Well, the author addresses this issue, and you'll have to wait. It sounds like sort of a promo trailer, doesn't it, for everything that's coming down the track. But these are all the things that we will get to and will touch on. Then he picks up again in chapter 6 the argument that Jesus is better than Aaron, and this is sort of part 2. And here is where you have in chapter 7 the appearance of this shadowy, strange figure, Melchizedek who I know has profound spiritual relevance for your life, doesn't he? <laughs> Every day you're thinking about Mel, Melchizedek. And really, Melchizedek is, is brought in. He's, he's a strange character because he crops up in Genesis, I think it's 14, just briefly, briefest encounter with Abraham. And then again in Psalm 110, there's this random mention of his name. And then that's it. The Old Testament, so, it's almost the fact that he's so elusive, I think, which appeals to the author of Hebrews. He sort of pulls this guy out and says, well, let's talk about him. And the, the problem that he's dealing with is this. If you want to claim that Jesus is a high priest, you want to claim that Jesus is greater than Aaron, all right, then he obviously needs to be a priest. Here's the problem. Priests in Israel come only from a specific tribe. Which tribe? Levi, Levi the tribe of Levi. Here's a problem. Can you see it? Jesus ain't from the tribe of Levi. What tribe's he from? Judah. Categorically, that rules him out. He's got a problem right up front. So the author gets around this with this absolutely superb argument in which he basically says, that's okay because guess what? There's an entirely other order of priests. Beside Aaron's whole order of priesthood, there is a new order of priests. And guess what? It goes back to this guy, Melchizedek. He is the leader of a brand new priesthood. And guess what? It's better than Aaron's priesthood. It, it trumps Aaron's own priesthood. So Jesus is a priest not of the order of Aaron, which would, but by which he would have had to have been a Levite. No, he's a priest by the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and he's better than Aaron, and this makes Jesus better than both of them. He is the ultimate high priest. Now, there's obviously a lot more detail about Melchizedek in there, and we'll unpack that at the time. So you get here halfway through about chapter 8, and you sort of look back, and there's been this trail of devastation, really. Just the major players, the major characters and figures of Judaism. It's like the author has just said, line them up. Bring it, you know? Jesus can handle it. Any of these major characters of Judaism that you want to set up as greater than Jesus, let's talk about it. Because he trumps that guy, and he trumps that guy, and he trumps that guy, and he's better than all of these. So why on earth would you want to follow anyone else? Now, again, it has to be said, his object is not simply to leave these guys shattered on the ground as if they're no value to anyone, rather to show the way in which each of them point in their own special and unique way to Jesus as their fulfillment and as their fruition. That's what he's doing. But he says then, well, I'm not really done. I know that we're finished with basically most of the big boys, the big dogs of Judaism, 
But guess what? Jesus is not only better than these people, he's also better than the institutions of Judaism, the rituals and the systems that you have going. This is the argument he picks up in chapter 8, verse 1, by suggesting so boldly that Jesus is greater or better than the tabernacle. Jesus is better than the tabernacle, chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. Here's the problem you've got. It starts to compound itself now. If you want to suggest that Jesus is greater than Aaron and therefore there's some new priesthood that Jesus is a part of, well, here's the problem. If you want to have a new priesthood, you're going to have to have a new place where the, old te- where the, uh, where the worship happened. You're going to have to have a new center of worship because the tabernacle in the Old Testament was the center of the priesthood. That's where they did their duty. That's where they performed these sacrifices. And this is exactly what he suggests, that in fact there is a new temple, there is a new tabernacle, and it's not one that's built by human hands, it's one that exists in heaven, it's the very throne room of God. Jesus didn't enter a human earthly tabernacle to present his sacrifice, he entered the true heavenly throne room, he he appeared at the true mercy seat before God Almighty and presented the sacrifice of his own blood for us. Now how does that make the tabernacle in the Old Testament look? A little bit inferior. It's not going to do the job that Jesus has done. It's not going to be as great as what Jesus has accomplished. So Jesus is better than the tabernacle. Now, I've got this a little bit mixed up, all right? I'm just going to go back and undo something. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, is this next point I'm going to give you now. Jesus is better than the old covenant. The tabernacle is chapter 9, verses 1 to 11, all right? If you're still writing. I've skipped ahead one. I have to come back and do it. Jesus is better than the tabernacle is chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. Let me go back one step. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. Once again, if you want to argue that there's a new priesthood, you're going to have to tell me that there is a new covenant because the priesthood is inseparably bound up with the old covenant. They mediated that particular covenant. That's what the priests did. And the author says you're exactly right. And in fact, there is a new covenant. And guess what? It's better than the old one. That Jesus has come, and this was prophesied, he often goes back, you'll see this time and again, he goes back to Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and he pulls out verses from their own scriptures to show them that right there, embedded in Jeremiah, is a promise that God was going to bring a new covenant and that it was going to be better than the old one. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with the house of Israel. It's going to be new. It's going to be about the cleansing of the conscience. It's going to be about the law written on my heart. This is an infinitely new covenant that Jesus has brought, and it is far better than the old one under Judaism. So Jesus is better than the old covenant. He's better with the tabernacle than the tabernacle. And here's the last one, chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus is better than animal sacrifices. This is really the pinnacle of the argument. Again, if you're going to argue that there's a new priesthood, you're going to need a new covenant. You're going to need a new place of worship, a new tabernacle. And you are going to need, no priest is going to enter the Holy of Holies without carrying with him what? A sacrifice for his sin, first of all, and most importantly, for the sins of those whom he is going to atone for. And the author of Hebrews says Jesus has done exactly this because guess what, friends? The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. He drops this bombshell on them. All those sacrifices you've been making and your ancestors have been making for generations, they can never take away sin. They can never deal decisively with human sin. It remains for the great sacrifice to be made, for the perfect lamb to be slaughtered, and this is exactly what Jesus has done. And it is at this point that Jesus becomes not only the priest offering the sacrifice, but the sacrifice itself. 
It's his own blood that he has spilled for us. And that becomes the consummate sacrifice being presented before God to cleanse our consciences for all time. Let me just read you. This is sort of the end of that whole trail here in chapter 10, verse 19. This all sort of comes to a head with these remarkable words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I did a course on Hebrews in seminary and after plowing my way through nine and a half chapters of heavy, heavy theology. I remember one day sitting in my apartment in Cincinnati just reading this passage and my eyes just started to well up a little bit, which if you ask my wife is quite unusual for me. I'm not a particularly emotional person, but I just got to this point and I was just struck with the sheer wonder of what it is that Christ has accomplished for us. What it is that we can stand with boldness and full assurance before the creator of heaven and earth and what has had to take place in order to purchase what you and I so often take for granted. I think I just saw it with new eyes. It had always been there and, and there's a sense in which you know it. You know the Sunday school pat answers and textbook stories and so on, but I think you just get, I got a fresh sense of what it was all about. I found myself responding the way I hope that those early Jewish Christians would have responded with a new fervor. How could I give up this Jesus? How could I abandon this hope? that is so profound and so immense. And so here's where the argument of the book turns, really. It's very practical from here on in. Let me just quickly run through it with you. The admonition in 10.19 that I've just read is don't give up. Persevere. Carry on. Don't throw in the towel. And see how this is connected to this pastoral crisis that's going on. It's, all, it's one thing to have all this theology. But if theology doesn't work itself out in your life, it's empty, isn't it? And then chapter 11, the great faith chapter of Hebrews. This is probably the most familiar part of Hebrews to most of us, this roll call of faith. But here's what's interesting. I mean, think of where he's come to this point. He's just undertaken this argument to prove that Jesus is better than all of these characters in the Old Testament. And yet look at chapter 11. Here they all are. And they're used not in a negative way, but in a positive. They're all examples of faith now. They're all sort of recalled to show what real faith looks like. And this, again, is the continuity that we're trying to bring out, that it's not about demolishing what we used to believe, but it's about seeing the way in which it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. All of these great examples of faith in chapter 11 ultimately pointed towards a greater faith that is only possible for you and I now to have on the other side of Easter because we know the one who gave his life as the perfect sacrifice, and this faith is only possible through Christ. We don't now hope for promises in the future. We hope for promises that have already been fulfilled in the dying and rising of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of chapter 11. That's the type of faith that we are called to have. Chapter 12, there's this great call to persevere in verses 1 to 3. And you can read that again for yourself, just this wonderful analogy of running the race. And then in 12.4, that we get really down to the nitty-gritty of what these people have been going through. And the, uh, the key here is that God, accept God's discipline. Learn to see your sufferings 
as discipline from the Lord. Learn to see the destination to which these things are taking you and not the pain and the heat of the moment. So accept God's discipline. And then in chapter, uh, verse 14 of chapter 12, pursue holiness. A few admonitions there to pursue holiness with other people in the way that we deal with one another. And then there's this conclusion toward the end of chapter 12, which is set up as a contrast between two mountains. Firstly, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, the author says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai here is representative of the distance from God, the mountain where the people had to stay at the bottom while Moses went to the top with God. Now, you haven't come to that kind of setup. We're not distant from God anymore. We're not at the bottom of the mountain looking up at some cloud at the top. You've come to Mount Zion, representative of intimacy and nearness with God. Mount Zion, of course, was the, the ridge on which the city of Jerusalem was built, on which the temple was built, and it represents in the context of this argument that communion that we are able to have now with God through Christ and to be able to come boldly into the inner room of the temple and fellowship with Him in, in, in close proximity, the closest that is ever possible. So you haven't come to Mount Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion, and finally we wrap up with some ethics for holy living in chapter 13, 1 through 18, just miscellaneous things, respect your leaders, pursue sexual morality, show hospitality to the stranger, all of these types of things that you get at the end of a lot of the New Testament letters. And finally we close with a great benediction, let me read it to you, chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back the sheep brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That, my friends, is Hebrews in a nutshell. And uh, I hope that uh, you are not too bewildered and overwhelmed and confused, but that that gives you a sense of what's going on here. I don't really intend this morning to be a huge life application message. I don't expect your lives to be radically and profoundly changed by what you've just heard. You can relax. But you know, it, I don't want to overlook the fact that there may be one or two of you here that actually sense some affinity with those people that Hebrews was written to. That you may sense even this morning that you're in that point of starting to waver a bit in your faith. Starting to become a little mediocre. Starting to wonder if the whole thing really makes sense, if it's really worth it. Starting to long for the glory days, the good old days and your former lifestyle your former social circle, your former habits that start to look quite alluring at times like those, and you're starting to wonder, even perhaps not consciously, but your actions betray you, that you are starting to drift and there's a bit of inertia that's going on between you and Christ. What better day, friends, than right at the outset of this series to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to press on and move on to better things. The word better is used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. We've got a better high priest, better covenant, better sacrifices, better promises, better hope, everything's better. And friends, what if today was a day you said, I want something better for my life. I've plateaued, I'm sick of mediocrity, I'm sick of just messing around and having one foot in both camps and thinking I can make this work. I want to follow Jesus with all of my heart and my mind and my soul. I am for him and that's it, end of story. What a great day to make that commitment. And it's something you can do in the quietness of your own heart. It's something you can do by coming and having a chat if you'd like, after the service with me, I'd love to pray with you if that's something that you feel you just need to recommit your life and, in a sense, orient yourself for this journey that we're going to go through. And I hope as we do this that it will be something that stirs a new level of faith in you, something that moves far beyond theology, far beyond academics and intellectualism to something that is radically and profoundly life-changing. I think it will be, and I'd ask you to join us in that journey as we move on from here. Let's pray together.